Good morning, church. You guys look good today. You look nice. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Want to take a moment, welcome all of our locations all across the state of Connecticut, City Church, One Church, five cities. Can we just put our hands together and say hello to all of our locations? Good morning, North Campus, Middletown, Bridgeport, Hartford. Welcome to City Church. Those of you here in New Haven, God bless you. Welcome. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. Thankful that you decided to join us for Easter Sunday. If you're visiting today, thank you for being here. You look very nice. I'm glad that you're here with us today. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead today. And so, yeah, that's something to be excited about. That's something that has real application for our lives. And all four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record the story of Christ's resurrection. It really is the linchpin of the Christian faith. And today I want to look at one of those stories in the Gospel of John, the story of the resurrection of Christ in the Gospel of John. And John's Gospel tells us that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead. And You know, Mary Magdalene, if you're new to the Bible, you know, there's like a lot of Marys, right? There's a lot of Marys and Johns. And so Mary Magdalene is not his mom, okay? And Mary Magdalene is not the sister of Lazarus. It's a different Mary. It's Mary number three, okay? And so Mary number three sees Jesus alive from the dead, or she sees the empty tomb, excuse me. And then she runs back to where the disciples are. She finds Peter and John and she says, you got to come here. The tomb is empty. And they go, they look at the empty tomb, they go inside and then they leave. And that's where we're going to pick the story up today in John chapter 20, starting in verse 10. Are you ready? Everybody, you guys up there, everybody's good. You ready? Here we go. Let's read the Bible together. Verse 10, it says, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, or uh, some translations would say master, my master. Incredible story of Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus alive from the dead. I want to talk to you today on a topic that I really believe has application for every single one of our lives here in the room. Maybe this is your first time ever at a church like this, or maybe it's your first time here at City Church, or maybe you've been here for our whole journey these last few years. But today I want to talk to you on the subject of the most important words on earth. The most important words on earth. Would you pray with me? Let's open up our hearts to God. Go ahead and bow your head. Let's take a moment and just invite God's Spirit to speak to us. God in heaven, we welcome your presence right now. I thank you that we've had the privilege of gathering 13 different times all across the state of Connecticut to sing and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning that you would take these words that I'm going to speak out of my mouth and that you would speak them to our spirits, that you would enable us to hear from you today and that we would never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. I don't know if you knew this, but scientists tell us that 
planet Earth is one giant magnet that at the core of our planet, there are molten metals moving in such a way that they send forth a magnetic field. And we should all be very thankful for this field because this magnetic field sustains life on earth. Scientists tell us without it, we could not have life here on earth. And so all around you right now, You are existing within a magnetic field, okay? And we know a little bit about magnets. Magnets attract, magic magnets repel, right? And I want to suggest this morning that just as there is a magnetic field in the physical all around us that we are often unaware of, yet it is present, so also there is a magnetic field in the spirit. In other words, just as the core of the earth has a magnet within it, So the core of your soul also has a magnet within it. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that there is something in you that is irresistibly drawn to God. Psychologists call this intuitive theism, that there is something inside of people that draws them to God. Of all the cultures across planet Earth, almost all of the human race, in some form or fashion, seeks after the divine. In fact, over the last 50 years, atheism has gotten more and more play in the public arena. But what studies show today is that after all of the books and all of the, all of the scientific research and all of the different ways that atheism has gotten more and more prevalent in our society, it's only about 2% of people, some studies show, that actually devote themselves to the idea of atheism. And in fact, that number has been declining since the 1970s. And so interestingly enough, though we would as a culture think that that number might be accelerating at a rapid pace, it seems that still people have this deep drawing, this longing, this ache for something beyond themselves, a magnet in the soul that seems to draw us towards the divine, seems to pull us towards something bigger than us. I read the story of Mary Magdalene in this context, and I see myself in it a lot. And I just want to encourage you, as we look at this story together, open up your heart and consider if you can see a little bit of yourself in her as well, because she lingers at the tomb when everybody else leaves, right? And I do really believe that that lingering is evidence of this drawing. She just couldn't go away, you know? She just hung out around the tomb, and she found herself unable to walk away. She just stayed there. And I think that the reason she stayed there is because she felt this pull. It's the same reason why you came to church today. Now, maybe you think in your mind, well, I came because my boyfriend made me, or I came because my family goes, or I came because that's what I do on Sundays. It's a tradition, or I came because it's Easter and everybody's supposed to go. I have this obligation. And those things are true, but I believe that underneath those things, there's a pull, a draw, a magnetic charge that seems to be luring you, drawing you, pulling you towards God. But I found like Mary that I have a tendency to go back and look for empty things. See, Mary had already visited the tomb. I don't know if you noticed this, but she looks into the tomb. She realizes it's empty. She then brings Peter and John. They realize that it's empty. They leave. And then it tells us that she looks back again. She goes back to the empty tomb that she had already examined. She sits down again, says she stoops, and she looks in again. What's she looking for? She's looking for a savior. And you know what I found in myself, and maybe you can identify with this? I found that whether I realize it consciously or not, I am consistently, in all the different spheres of my life, looking for a Savior. And I have this propensity to seek a Savior 
through empty things that I've already pursued in the past. Let me give you an example. Try to illustrate what I'm saying here. Some of us, tomorrow morning is Monday morning, right? And you're going to get your coffee and you're going to go to work and you're going to sit down at your desk or wherever it is that you go and you're going to drink that coffee and you're going to look at your watch and you're going to go, it's 942. It's 942. It's 943. And your mind is not going to be thinking about Monday night or Tuesday night or Wednesday night. Your mind is going to be thinking about Friday night. Because in your mind, you're just powering through to get to the weekend. You say, Friday night, I'm going to be free. Friday night, I don't have to, I'm off. And then I'm off on Saturday. I've got some time to myself. I can kind of pursue what I want to pursue and do what I want to do. And so even Monday morning, you're already thinking about the weekend. Because in your mind, whether you realize it or not, the weekend has become your savior. You look forward to it every week, hoping that it will fulfill your expectations for personal time and for some fun in your life. And so you put and you push and you wait for the weekend and sometimes the weekend is great and sometimes the weekend doesn't pan out the way you hoped but when the weekend ends it's Monday again and you go it's over and now I gotta do this again and I'm waiting for the weekend. Maybe for you, it's not the weekend. Maybe you find your savior in a relationship and you've dated a few people and you've had some good relationships, but you haven't met Mr. Perfect yet. And so you're hoping and waiting and seeking and, and looking for Mr. Perfect. And you found somebody you thought he was Mr. Perfect, but six months into it, you found out he was Mr. Definitely Imperfect. And so that didn't work out. And so you're looking for somebody else and you've kind of, you've kind of gone around, you've tried a few things and maybe you're struggling with that sense of loneliness. And you think to yourself, Justin, if I could just find the right guy or if I could just find the right girl, if I could just find the right relationship, it would really meet that need in my life. Would it though? Would it though? Or is it possible that you've taken something that could never save you and turned it into your savior? See, some of us, we do this with our jobs. You know, you climb the corporate ladder and you get higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And, 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 and every time it's like, well, if I just made a little more, then I'd have enough. Or if I just did a little more, then I'd do enough. Or you say, well, I really like this field. And then you do it for a while and you go, no, no, I really like this field. Then you do it for a while. And you go, I don't really like, it. I like this field. And you've changed jobs so many times. What are you doing? You're looking not for a career, but for a savior. See, all of us in our hearts have this propensity to be drawn to a savior. And just like Mary, it seems that too often we go back to empty things, hoping that this time there'll be a savior there for us. Let me go back to that relationship. Let me go back. I'm talking to you today, to that career move. Let me go back, and I just hope that this time it'll be for me enough. Did you notice how Mary interprets the empty tomb? I see a little myself here too. How she interprets the empty tomb. Before the text we read, look at what it tells us about how Mary interprets the empty tomb. Look at verse 2. It says, so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. That's the message she came and brought on Easter Sunday. I find that incredibly interesting. Why? Because for months, according to the scriptures, Jesus had been telling his closest followers, hey guys, 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 come here. Let me explain something. Pretty soon we're going to go to Jerusalem. When we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, okay? And then I'm going to be buried. And then three days later, I'm going to come forth from the grave and conquer death on your behalf. So prepare yourselves. It's going to be, I die, and then three days later, I rise from the dead. Do you understand? And they all sat there and they were kind of like, what are you trying to say? 
And so he told them again, and he told them again. In fact, he told them so many times that even his enemies knew that he had claimed he would rise from the dead. That's why they posted guards outside the tomb. Everybody knew that Jesus claimed he would rise from the dead. And here is Mary, one of his faithful followers, and it never even occurs to her that maybe he rose from the dead, right? She gets there, and she's like, someone stole the body. That's her interpretation of the facts. She never considers the guy who maybe walked on water and healed the blind actually did what he said he was going to do. That's strange, isn't it? It's strange that we think like that. Yeah. It's strange that we interact that way. There's another passage in the book of Matthew that highlights this idea. Let me read it to you because it is interesting. It says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's about to meet up with his disciples in Galilee, okay? And it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him. Why? Well, because if you were standing in front of a resurrected man, you'd probably worship him too. But then it says three words that are puzzling in the text. Do you see what they are? Are they out there? It says, But some... What? doubt it? Hold on a second. You're standing in front of Jesus who has risen from the dead, right? He's standing in front of you. You can see the scars in his hands. You can see the imprint of the crown of thorns on his forehead. And you're stepping back going, you know, if we had just a little more evidence, I feel like I could really just trust this. What's wrong with these people? I would encourage you to consider this truth today, that what's wrong with these people is the same thing that's wrong with you. We like to think of ourselves as rational people. Give me enough evidence and I'd believe. But the scripture says that our rationality has its limits. In fact, our rationality is not the real center of our decision-making process. That deeper down inside of us, even though we're drawn like a magnet to God, we are also in the depth of our heart prone to a propensity to doubt. And we're not just calculating evidence. There's something broken on the inside, something that leads us to doubt even when the evidence is right in front of our face. Look at what the scripture says happens next in verse 12. Take a look. It says, and she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, this woman just saw some angels, right? She's been told multiple times by Jesus that he's going to rise from the dead. She knows that the tomb is empty. Is the evidence adding up here? I mean, when's the last time you bumped into a couple of angels at the empty tomb, right? And so here she is and look at her response again. She says to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Like, really? Are you serious right now? You still don't get it? And from a distance, it's easy for us to say, well, if I had evidence like that, I'd be a devoted follower of Christ. I'd give my money away. I'd sacrifice all I have. I'd do anything for God if I was so sure like she should be so sure. But I want to tell you today that if you saw the evidence that she saw, I bet that you would have this propensity to doubt as well. Because all around you right now, there is evidence that God is drawing you. There is evidence that God is calling you. And in fact, if you look back over the landscape of your life, you would find that all along there have been knockings. All along there have been callings. All along there have been moments where God's been trying to get your attention. There was that car accident that you walked away from when you shouldn't have. There was that diagnosis that should have taken you out and yet you find yourself here. There was that dream that you had so many times and you never really resolved what that calling, what that thing was inside of you. You look back over your life and you find that the reality is, is that God has been calling, angels have been working, but something is wrong. You can't seem to see it. 
2 Corinthians 4 gives us a little insight into our own hearts. Look at what it says. It says, The God who rules this world has blinded the minds, blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see the light, which is the good news about our glorious Christ, that shows us what God is like. Blinded the minds. Something is covering our ability to see. Matthew 13 says it like this. The people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. Their eyes, they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Something is stopping us from being able to see. And Psalm 146 gives us the solution. Look what it says. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. I want to meditate on a truth this Easter Sunday that's important for every one of us. You can't see without God's help. Now, if that's true, that's a little humbling, and many of us don't like that idea because we like to think that our perspective is reality. But the truth is that you can't see without God's help. You're here today, and maybe you've been real successful in business. You're 46 years old. You look back over your life. You say, you know, I've done pretty well for myself. I've started some businesses. I've climbed the corporate ladder. I've done pretty good. Justin, the truth is I don't really need Jesus at the center of my life. I don't need some religion or some tradition in my life to make, have it meaningful. I have meaning just within myself. I've, I've got a nice house. I, I drive a good car. I've done all types of good things. You don't understand. I don't need that in my life. Friend, that seems like it makes sense from a natural perspective, but what you need to realize is that any moment now, any moment now, any moment now, breath is going to leave your lungs and you are going to die. A hundred out of a hundred do. You'll be standing before God and in that moment you'll realize, whoa, hold on a second, my business didn't come with me, my car didn't come with me, my house didn't come with me, it's all gone, it means nothing, and I didn't even consider that I would be here or think about how my life should be different because I'd end up here because I was blind. I didn't realize all along that there was something bigger than just my 75, my 85 years on planet earth. Something more. The scripture says that God has written eternity on our hearts. Written eternity on our hearts. You can't see without God's help. Look what happens next. Verse 14. It says, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. And, she, and Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. This story gets wild, right? What is blinding Mary, a woman who knew Jesus very well, stay with me today, who knew Jesus very well, who followed Jesus and trusted Jesus, believed he was the son of God. Here she is, she's standing in front of him, she still can't recognize him. In fact, we're told that she thinks he's the gardener, Right? She thinks that he is the guy who takes care of the grass. That's who she thinks he is, right? And then she goes even a step further. Check this out. She accuses Jesus of stealing Jesus' body. I mean, think about how heinous this is. She's saying, hey, listen, if you stole the body of Jesus, just give him to me. I'll take care of it. You don't have to. Please don't do that. You know, like she's accusing him of stealing. And we read this and we think, gosh, how could you, he's the son of God. He rose from the dead. How could you mistake him for a gardener? How could you accuse him of stealing? Jesus of stealing. And yet if we pause, what we discover is that you have a propensity 
to see Jesus as common. Just going to church, sing a few songs, it's just a routine we do on Sunday. It's not anything divine. There's nothing eternal. It's just a routine. I just see it as common. Some of us in the room, you've even been accusing Jesus of stealing for a long time. You say, oh, Justin, Jesus, if I followed him with my whole life, I mean, he'd steal my fun. He'd steal my freedom. He'd steal my peace. He'd steal what I want to do. I want to be in control of myself. He'd steal my opportunities. Some of us, you've been carrying for years after the death of that loved one, this idea that Jesus even stole that person from you. Is that who God is? Is that the type of God he is? I remember reading years ago, one Christian author, A.W. Tozer, say that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Is that the type of God he is? The type of God who steals good things from you? The type of God who limits you? The type of God whose arms are folded and heart is distant from you? Some of us, you've lived your whole life thinking that way. Agnostic or religious, but not experiencing God. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives us a story to help once and for all clarify the heart of God towards people. And you probably heard the story before. In the story, God is pictured as a father. And he has two sons, and one of the sons decides, you know what, my life would be better if I just left my father and did what I want to do. And so he leaves home, and he goes out, he spends his father's money, he celebrates life, he does all the things he wants to do, and he finds that after a while, that celebration ends, his friends leave, his money runs out, and he's empty. And so in that moment of awareness, he says, I better return to my father. And he gets up and he returns to his father. But the amazing thing about the story is not really the process of the son, because we can all identify with that on some level, but the process of the father. The story tells us that when the son approaches the father's house, the father has been looking for him and waiting for him all along. And rather than rejecting him or scolding him, the father picks up his gown, picks up his robe and runs towards him, wraps his arms around the son, kisses him, embraces him, and reinstates him as his accepted beloved child. Oh, you got to see, God is trying to cut through the lies in your mind right now. Because what we see in that story is the real intention, the real heart, the real purpose of God. That he is not a cold, calculated, bitter, angry warlord far from you. But he is a father who cares for you, who loves you, and whose arms are open wide to you. Jesus said, let me fix your perception. You've been thinking God's far away. You've been thinking that he's distant, but just like Mary, who couldn't see, Jesus is much closer than you realize. He's much closer, much closer than you realize. In fact, right now, at all of our locations, Jesus is in this room. He's here. He's here right now, But many of us, we can't seem to see him because we've never had an experience like Mary has in verse 16. And I want to tell you that today is your day to have that experience. Let's look at verse 16. 
It says this, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said, my teacher, my master. Isn't that interesting? He speaks her name. Now, think about the last time in your life when you heard your name spoken in a large crowd. Maybe you were at a restaurant or maybe you were at a grocery store and you're there and you're doing your thing. There's hundreds of people chit-chatting and talking. Then all of a sudden, all the way across the room, somebody just shouts your name. I mean, you know that feeling, like you perk up right away. In fact, scientists tell us that your name unlocks a certain thing in your brain that awakens you, that makes you come alive, that no other word unlocks. There's something in you that responds to your name. Think about maybe you're at a graduation, you know, and you're there and they're saying all these different, Bill Johnson, John Smith, you know, da, 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 all these different, and then they say your name. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, they said my name. Something happens inside you. I remember when I was in high school, I played basketball. And um, play is maybe an overstatement. I sat on the bench while other people played basketball. And, um, and I remember that every once in a while they put me in the game when we were up by like 300 points, you know. And so, which didn't happen much. So that means I didn't play much. And so when I did get in the game, occasionally I would shoot, you know. And occasionally when I shot, the ball went in the basket. And so when the ball went in the basket, guess what happened? Over the loudspeaker, Justin Kendrick, two points. It was like the most amazing feeling in the world. It was like, oh, oh, oh. That guy knew my name. I mean, it was because my number, he had a little chart and he saw it, but it didn't matter to me. It's an experience. Something is drawn out of you when you hear your name. Think for a moment what it would feel like if you were flipping TV channels and Oprah Winfrey was on and, you know, she starts talking and she says, well, actually, I've been really inspired by this Facebook account I found recently. And, you know, the Facebook, they post all these really inspiring things. And then she says your name and you're like, shut up. Oprah's on my Facebook like, it would blow your mind, right? Or if you were, if you were listening to your favorite sports, you know, uh, athlete just, you know, after a game, they say, hey, what's inspired such great play recently? You say, oh, well, uh, truthfully, there's this blog I found, and, it's, and then they say, you're blind. And you're like, what? Are you kidding? They just said my, they would blow you away. See, when Jesus refers to Mary as woman, she can't recognize him. But when Jesus refers to Mary as Mary, something happens. I came here today to tell you something. Wherever you find yourself in life, you need to realize with new explosive conviction today on Easter Sunday that the God who spoke the world into existence knows your name. He knows your name in fact, in Jeremiah chapter 1, it says it like this. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I've known you all along. In Matthew 10, it says it like this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. I take the time to number the hairs on your head. You don't think I know your name? I take the time to know every single nuance of your life. I've collected every tear you've ever cried in a bottle. You don't think I know your name. You've lived your life like I don't care. And that's the biggest lie you've ever believed. I've cared all along. I've been there all along. I've been right in front of you all along. But you haven't been able to see me. I've been working. I've been moving. I've been speaking. I've been whispering. I got you even a church today to get your attention but you still act like I don't speak. Isaiah 43, fear not, I have redeemed you. Oh my goodness, what would it look like to live a life without fear? 
I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. Now, God can speak a thousand different ways. I've seen him speak in my own life in so many crazy ways. He can, if you're listening, he can speak to you through a sunrise. He can speak to you through a smile in a little baby's face. He can speak to you through a random movie you watched on Netflix. He, not all movies, but some movies. He can speak to you through a preacher on a stage. He can speak to you through a uh, song you find on the radio. There's all types of ways that God can get your attention and speak. But I have found, and Scripture bears witness to this, that most of the time, God speaks in a unique way. He speaks not through a sign in the clouds, because you'd think that'd convince you, but I'm here to tell you it wouldn't. You'd find a good reason for why that wasn't true, just like Mary was blind. Most of the time, he speaks through a magnetic pull in your inner person. Most of the time, he whispers to the soul. And if you would just take a few minutes to quiet down from the busyness, from the excuses, you would discover that the God of the universe knows your name and that he's trying to get your attention right now. And when he speaks your name to your heart, that becomes the most important words on earth. Because Jesus must be known through personal encounter. You can't just know about him. You can't just know facts. You can't just have traditions. You must know the person, Jesus. I do, humbly. He's introduced himself to me. My life's never been the same, never. You can know him like that. You say, how? How could I know Jesus, Justin? How could I know God like that? Well, our natural inclination when we think about things like this is to run to religion. And what I mean by religion is a, a set of rules that help us feel better about ourselves. Like, be a good person and God will accept you. You know, give some money, you know, serve at the United Way once in a while, help an old lady across the street, do a few good deeds and you'll be a good person. In fact, most people think of that when they think of Jesus. If you talk to an average person in America and say, do you believe in heaven? They'll say yes. You say, do you believe that you'll go to heaven? They say, I think so. And then you say, well, why do you believe you'd go to heaven? And the natural response is almost always, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. And so we create routines and religion and rhythms so that we can feel better about ourselves. I've done some good things. See, the problem with this type of religion is that if you actually do succeed in convincing yourself that you're a good person, well, you've developed a heart of self-righteousness. And that pride will keep you from ever knowing God. And if you don't convince yourself that you're a good person, well, then you'll always battle with self-condemnation. And shame will keep you from knowing God. No, tradition and religion... You being good enough will never bring you to real relationship with your creator. 
Some people run to spirituality, right? We run to some spiritual experience. Well, let me meditate. Let me do these spiritual things, you know? And some of us would say, well, Justin, I'm just going to kind of craft my idea of God. I like this part, but I don't like that part. I'm going to just think of my, what I think of God. I'm going to just kind of create my own version. I don't want to try to stick to a historical understanding of who God is, how he's revealed himself through history. No, no. I just want to create, I want to understand God for myself in my own way. But the problem is that when you do that, you end up cutting out the parts of God you don't like and making God look just like yourself. And in your worship of God and your prayer towards God, you're really just worshiping self. And self-worship will only lead you to emptiness, not fulfillment. Because there is one who's greater than you, who sees further than you do, and who knows you better than yourself. Knows spirituality alone, religious tradition alone will never bring you into that relationship with your creator. This is, in fact, the very reason why Jesus came. Oh, come on, stay with me today on Easter Sunday. Jesus came to build a bridge that would bring you to God, a bridge that could never be shaken. He did it first by becoming your representative. You know what a representative is. We elect representatives to Congress and the Senate and all types of things in our country, and they're supposed to represent the people of that region. In the same way, Jesus came to earth to represent the human race before God. He lived a perfect life as our representative. And then he died as a substitute for our sin. See, the scripture says there's a wall between you and God. And that wall is the brokenness of our own hearts. The propensity in us toward pride, towards lust, towards fear, towards greed. That brokenness called sin separates us from our creator. And no matter what we try to do, it exists within us. We can't wish it away. We can't hope it away. It is a debt we owe to God. And the shame in your soul speaks that that is true. And so with that boundary between you and God, there is no way to cross it except for Christ who came. He died on the cross so that he could wash away the sins that you've committed. God, who is outside of time, sees your life from beginning to end, the day you're born and the day you die. He sees every sin you've ever committed. He saw it ahead of time. He scooped it all up in one great basket and he put it upon Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross so that Jesus' perfect life, sacrifice for your sin, leaves you blameless before him. But he didn't stay there. The mystery and the glory of Sunday is that Jesus Christ conquered death. That he walked out of the grave so that you could have eternal life. And you can't come to God with a collection of your merit badges and hope to find acceptance. And you can't come to God with your own version of spirituality and hope to find acceptance. You must come to God by grace through faith. Grace is unearned, undeserved favor. It's receiving from God what you could never earn on your own. And it's humbling to receive grace. Our hearts rebel against it because our arrogance tells us we want to find God ourselves. But the road to God is the road of humility. And you must accept the free gift of forgiveness and acceptance before him. And when you do, he adopts you into his family, takes his Holy Spirit and places it in your heart and gives you peace that's eternal. What's it mean to have faith? It means that you take a step and you trust. And I don't know all the details of your story, But I know that there are many here that if you're honest, 
You live your life far from God. He's not the center of your life. He's not the center of your ambitions. How long will you hope for the weekend to save you? How long will you hope for the relationship to save you? How long will you hope for the career to save you? Because those saviors are just empty graves. Turn to Jesus Christ. Give him your sin. Give him your past. Give him your will. Give him your heart. And he'll give you eternity. And he'll give you peace. And he'll give you hope. And he'll give you new life. One more thought today. Why would God do this? Why would God send his son, die in our place, rise from the dead, and give us this story to proclaim to every heart that is open to him? There's only one reason. And this is the real mystery of Easter. He loves you like a father. He loves you like a father. And he is here in the room to reveal that love to the very core of your soul. Would you stand to your feet with me? Would you take a moment, wherever you find yourself today, and close your eyes in prayer. God, I thank you for Easter Sunday. I thank you that Jesus is, in fact, much closer than we've realized. I thank you that today you call us by name. I thank you, God, that there are no coincidences, that it's not a coincidence that each person is here right now, that the words spoken were spoken. You know our names. Jill, he knows your name. Peter, he knows your name. Andre, he knows your name. God, I pray that as we sing this song this morning, that any boundary between you and us would crumble as we place our trust in Christ alone. Come on, let's sing.